Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Revelation 12, verse 1, it says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times and a half time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. May God bless the reading of his word. I have a friend uh, whose child for uh, what they thought was, I think it was several weeks, was uh, was puffed up and teary-eyed and uh, had symptoms of trouble breathing, um, couldn't sleep very well. Uh, they, they treated it first for like a viral cold, uh, gave them all sorts of over-the-counter medicines. Uh, none of that seemed to work. Uh, then they got worried it was bacterial, uh, gave them some antibiotics. That didn't seem to treat it either. So uh, they took him to this other doctor and had him look at it and said, this has been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And uh, the doctor uh, sort of examined him and then looked up his nose and, and stuck something up there and pulled out a bean that the child had stuffed up there and had begun to germinate and, and grow all sorts of terrible things up there. All of you have had children stuff French fries and Legos and stuff up their noses. But the, the story illustrates this, that so often in life... Uh, we are treating the wrong thing. The Apostle John is continually telling us through the book of Revelation that things are not as they seem. 
that what you're struggling with, what you're facing, what's happening out in the world is at times in your immediate perception, not the full picture. And what he wants to do for us this morning is talk to us about the battles and struggles that we experience on a personal level and on a communal level are actually more intense and severe than you, th- than you imagine with your immediate eye. I mean, ask yourself this question. What if the real problem in life was bigger than what I think of with my immediate eye? Because what he wants to say to you this morning is that it is. And there's someone behind it. The devil. So this morning... Um, not an exhaustive way, but, but let's look at the, the idea of the devil from this text. Under three headings, the idea of the devil, secondly, the tactics of the devil, and thirdly, learning to actually resist the devil, that our battle in life might be bigger than what we perceive. So first, the idea of the devil. Now, the first six verses uh, that we're given here are, are really peculiar and sort of are in, 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 intended to be a narrative story to illustrate a bigger spiritual reality. You've got three characters here, the woman, uh, the child, and the great dragon. Now, the woman, we're told in verse 1, was clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, every scholar will tell you this most likely comes from Genesis chapter 37, where if you've ever read the book of Genesis, uh, the character Joseph... Uh, has a dream about his family, and in the dream, uh, his father is the sun, uh, his mother is the moon, and he and his brothers are the the 12 stars. So what's likely going on is what John sees here is that this woman who is pregnant in this uh, image, uh, in the agony of birth pains, is meant to represent the people of God. The Old Testament people of God, the New Testament church, and the people of God today. The second character you see is uh, this child that we're told in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod iron. Now, this most likely comes, every commentator will say, from Psalm chapter 2, which is one of the most used psalms to talk about Jesus in the New Testament to say who he will be and what he will come to do, that he is this prophesied king who will not just come to have some spiritual teaching, he's going to take over the world. And so you have uh, this child that uh, she's to give birth to. And the third character here is what we're told in verse 3, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. And John tells us himself in verse 9 that the great dragon was thrown down the ancient serpent who is called the devil. So he's saying uh, this one in this image, it's the one from Genesis 3 and is the one who presently is actively involved in this world uh, who Jesus himself resisted, known as the devil. Now, around this story, we're, said, we're told this in verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, and then in verse 3 again, and another sign appeared. Now, a sign, you know, is just something that points beyond itself. So this little story here is, is something that's given to us to point beyond what it's just immediately telling. And you have three of the biggest realities if you're going to consider Christianity. One, you've got uh, a people that you're supposed to be a part of. 
When you become a Christian, you join a community. Two, the reason you do it is because Christians really believe this prophecy and this history about this man named Jesus. He really was real. He really did walk out of the grave. And everything he said about himself is going to become true. And the third reality that we're sort of given here in this text that you're going to have to consider is the idea is that there's somebody, there's a spiritual being who is against all of this, the devil. And the three of them are in constant conflict and war. And if you want to be a Christian, you're going to have to become aware of the reality of this war going on at all times. See, what we're learning here is that behind all of your little struggles in life, behind all of your little battles in life, is a real battle that is going on for the universe itself. And the great enemy is this one called the devil. Now, let's just pause as Americans and admit what a peculiar relationship we have with this idea of the devil. Uh, in their book, Paranormal Activity, sociologists uh, Christopher Bader, F. Carson Mencken, and Joseph Baker, they wrote this, Americans are deeply divided on the nature of evil. Researchers have found that a person's views about the nature of evil and the role of evil impact other behaviors and beliefs. For instance, beliefs about Satan are a strong predictor of participation in social movements, rallies, petitions, pickets, and membership associated with the moral majority. More, more recently, strong views of religious evil and Satan have even been found to be associated with intolerance and harsh views on sexuality such as homosexuality. Now, here's what, the, don't get lost in what they're saying, but they're saying this. On the one hand, we as Americans scoff and laugh at this idea of the devil. We sort of, uh, you know, laugh at, at the sect of our uh, country or our society that looks at any faux pas, any um, unique struggle and just says, well, that's just satanic. But on the other hand, we can't stop making movies about this. You know, one of the most successful movies since the, the month of May is this movie, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. We have this really torn relationship that we want to mock it, but we can't explain everything else going on around us without it. And what that can do for you spiritually is put you into two dangerous pitfalls that you need to avoid this morning. On the one hand, there's the tendency to try to be a Christian and make sense of your world and have an overemphasis on the devil. You know what I mean? If you ever talk to anybody who's a Christian or tried to be a Christian and just wants to find a demon under every rock, like we're having, having a worship service, the lights go out, oh gosh, Satan, it's a work. Um, or anytime anybody has anything hard, they never want to take responsibility for their sin or their practice. They never want to admit their own participation in something like this. It's just a third character who's controlling me and making me do it. And the problem with that is it, it eliminates so much of the testimony of Scripture that talks about sin being a living reality that it possesses our heart, that's present within our struggle, that you and I are battling within ourselves. 
that left into ourselves and apart from the influence of Satan is itself a difficult battle. But on the other hand, what we can dangerously do is underemphasize the presence of the devil. That is, we don't give any spiritual credence or any idea to the cosmic warfare that you and I are going on spiritually on a daily basis. And you know what? Satan really wants you to believe that. I mean, the great 90s movie, uh, The Usual Suspects, Kevin Spacey famously says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world he does not exist. And you know what? Satan would love for everyone outside of the church to believe that, but especially those inside the church to believe everything happening to you and around you has nothing to do with a battle going outside of the universe. You know, Elizabeth Klopfler was this woman who was Ted Bundy's girlfriend before his life, you know, went insane. And she said uh, he disappeared, was gone for many months, and then called her and said some news is going to break about those Tallahassee murders. And she began to ask him about it. And, uh, and they had this conversation that got really emotionally heated. And he began to press back. And she said, do you think something's wrong with you? Do you think you're sick? And he became indignant and angry and hung up the phone. She said she didn't hear from him for months. And then he called back from prison when he'd been arrested. And just started talking some aggressive things, uh, I, unexplained frustrations and pain in his life. She said uh, he, that he finally said, I'm consumed with something and I don't understand it and that I can't even contain it. She said I, he spent so much time trying to maintain a normal life, but he couldn't do it. He was too preoccupied with this unexplainable force. Now, I don't know exactly what happened there, but do you really want to live in a world where Ted Bundy's stories happen and he's saying there's this unexplainable force going on with this horrific evil and you just come away and saying he needs to see a psychologist, he might be crazy? Is that sufficient for you to make sense of living life in this world? Look, the, the Bible says one of the main categories for you working through why you can't stop doing this thing in your life, for why you have these moments of silent anger and hatred, for why you battle this fantasy or this one is spiritual warfare. And you will never get your hands around that and make sense of it if you have no category for the devil. The first thing that you have to understand in this text is to make sense of the idea of the devil. Now, secondly, you have to know that the devil itself, your enemy, has real tactics. I mean, this vision that John gives us in verse 5, look at this. He says, 
She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was placed and prepared by God. So this dragon wanted to attack the child, which probably is a reference to Luke chapter 4, where the devil takes Jesus out on the desert and tries to tempt him and fails to do so. So what, he, what John sees next in verse 17 is when, when the dragon fails all his, his attacks on this child, it says, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. So we're told that Satan's frustration in his inability to overtake Jesus leaves him with an unquenchable anger to go after the thing that Jesus has loved Jesus loves, which is his people. And he has two tactics that he particularly uses to go after his people with. And, and we're given two of them in the text. Verses 9 and 10, look at this. It says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Now there's two descriptions of him that are his main two tactics that you will always see in your own life and in the testimony of the church. That's he is a deceiver and he is an accuser. This word deceiver is the Greek word diabolos. It literally is the word for devil. And it's just a verb that means to lie. The devil's name is literally, he is a liar. And what he wants to do is come into your life and whisper plausible lies. Things that sound so legitimate about the way to life are actually the way to death. And his other adjective that he's described as is the accuser. That is his main activity is to come to God's people like a prosecuting lawyer and find any small minutia he can in your life and aggressively go after it to make you feel guilty and full of shame. Thomas Brooks uh, was this uh, 1600s Puritan minister and he wrote this great little book called uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Desi Devices. And in the book, he outlines the tactics of Satan and some of the great little ways that Christians can fight against these tactics. Here, here's what he says. Here's the devices, seven devices of, of Satan trying to tempt his people. What Satan will do is show you the bait and hide the hook. That is, uh, he will magnify the short-term pleasure and hide the long-term misery. Secondly, he'll, rationalize, he'll teach you to rationalize sin as a virtue. That is, he'll get you to think things like, well, I'm not greedy, I'm just thrifty. Or I'm not a gossip, I'm just concerned. Or I don't drink too much, I'm just, I'm just sociable. Uh, third, he will show you the sin of Christian leaders. That is, you'll see somebody 
who's been a big influence maybe even on you or someone around you who falls into some sort of sin, you'll think, well, it's not a big deal. He did it. Or how, how, how destructive can it be if she did it? Four, he will tempt you to abuse the mercy of God. I can go ahead and do this because I know he'll forgive me. Five, he'll make you bitter over suffering. That is, you'll get to a point in life you'll go, look, everything I've been through, I deserve this. This is my right. Six, he he will show you how many bad people seem to have good lives. Is I might as well, because it's not like following God has gotten me anywhere in life. Seven, he'll get you to compare one one area of your life with another. That is, you'll begin to think in life, well, I'm good over here, and this part of my life is fantastic. Like, I provide so much money for my family. I'm the best employer. I'm the best friend, the most loyal person. This little part of my life, though, this justifies all of that. And everything there is a plausible lie. He will come convince you that this is not just something that's deep, embedded rebellion. It's something that makes sense. But Brooks goes further. He also says, here's the devices of of Satan's accusations. Because when Satan comes to you like a prosecuting lawyer, what he will do is he will say these things to you. The devil will cause you to look more at your sin than at your Savior. Some of you wrongly think the way to grow in the Christian life is to stare and make yourself feel terrible about your sin. That is, you just want to throw on the guilt. You want to to analyze it to every possible square inch about how corruptible your heart is. You know, there's, there's no part of the gospel that wants you to avoid your sin, but nor stare at it all only. In fact, one Puritan minister used to say, for every moment you look at your sin, you ought to look at your Savior ten times. But what Satan wants you to do is for every look at Jesus to look at your sin ten times. He will accuse you by having you obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. He will will constantly tell you the past is not just the past and all is not forgiven. He will constantly accuse you by making you think the troubles you're going through must be punishments. This hard thing that's happening to you It's because you did this in your 20s. It's because you let this happen to one of your children. It's because you did this to your coworker. The devil really wants you to believe that karma is how the world works. And it's definitely in the economy of God. Fourthly, 
He will accuse you by making you think that no other Christian could share your inner struggles and feelings. That is, you'll go through something and be sure I'm the only one. How many of you have ever felt something that felt really dark and evil and you, you're sure you can't share it with anybody because no one's ever felt it? That's an accusation of Satan. When Becky and I moved to California, we registered our cars. We had to get driver's license in the state. And uh, we had moved from the state of Georgia to Pennsylvania, so we had a little bit of precedence on this. But when we tried to get California driver's license, they said, great, okay, Go over there and take your test. And I was like, excuse me? And um, I had to take a driver's license test that I'd not taken in like 25 years. And I passed it by one question. <laughs> and the, the reason I, I, I almost failed is because I wasn't prepared. Because I didn't study. I had no idea what was coming. Look, this language that you're given here by John, Satan the accuser and Satan the deceiver, it says in verse 15 that the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. These are not moments in your life. This is like a final exam every day that he wants to drown God's people with these lies and accusations. And I tell you what, if you don't start preparing for that, you will fail every time. You will give in to the lie and you will fall in the accusation every single time. Sure, that God will not love you and that God will never forgive you and that following him is not the way to find joy and rest in life. And so you have to know the tactics of Satan. So we see the idea of Satan, the tactics of Satan, but thirdly, how in the world do you begin to resist this? How do you fight against this? I mean, one of the things that I want you to walk away from or walk away with this morning is the idea that, listen, living with the devil and the idea of the devil is not just something charismatic Christians do, nor is it something that you can choose to have active in your life. This is a war that is presently happening whether you engage in it and wake up to it or not. It's happening around you, but here's the good news about the war. Six times in the text, it says this, that the devil was thrown down. Did you notice this? It says uh, in, um, in verse 8, he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down. Then again in verse 11 and in verse 13, he had been thrown down. Six times it continually says it through this text. Now, this word thrown down is the Greek word uh, ebelis. 
It literally means to be bounced. If you want to think of like Patrick Swayze or in like a, a bar, and literally it, the image is that the devil was picked up and hurled out and thrown out and defeated. Now when? Because you have to, this is important to understand for resisting the devil. This is not talking about one day the devil will be defeated. The language is all aorist past tense language, which means he has been defeated. And you ask when? Well, it was at the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the grave, and this is why it's so significant for Christians, it was a victory not just over death, but over Satan himself, the author of sin and death. And so what this means is that when you resist Satan, you're participating in a battle that has already been won. And you're fighting for victory in light of a victory that is already real. Now, this is big because what it does is it lifts the burden off of you. Do you know this? It means when you go out and fight spiritual warfare and you resist the devil, the weight of this war is not in your hands. It's already been won and defeated on the cross and the resurrection. And what you're doing is living in light of a victory that is already present and real and historically proved for us. And you can begin to fight and resist back by doing two things that were given in verse 11. That's to preach and to have a testimony. It says this in verse 11. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Now every time the Bible says the blood of the Lamb, it's referring to the cross. It's talking about uh, Jesus' work for us and atoning for us our sin and declaring for us right with God and having us accepted on the imputed righteousness given to us in the atoning work of Jesus. And when it says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, what it's saying is that the cross of Jesus Christ has a functional use for Christians. It's not just something that we say, oh good, that the cross for a Christian is meant to have a functional purpose in your life. It's a bit like this. If somebody brings you dinner and puts it on your front porch, like, hey, I I brought you guys uh, dinner tonight. Like, that's a nice thing, but it's utterly useless if you just leave it out on the front porch. The intention of the gift is for you to bring that in your house and to consume it. Look, the cross of Jesus is not just something for you to acknowledge that it had happened. It's something for you to grab hold of and begin to bring into your life. And what the accusations of Satan will do is to say that the cross does not exist. That that past thing in your life, you've got to make up for it. You've got to atone for it. You've got to get yourself right with And that's all the way the world works. But what the cross does is to sort of answer every one of those accusations and say, no, 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 no. The defense rests. The Apostle John says this in 1 John 2. He says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. 
Now, what he means is, is whenever you struggle in sin in life and you feel that accusation coming up saying, you better cover this up, you better lie, because when you get busted, no one will love you. What John wants you to do is say, no, 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 you need to turn to your lawyer. Because how it works is in the throne room of holiness, you don't come and say, listen, God, I promise if you just give me another chance, I'll keep trying. Actually, you sit down with your mouth shut and your lawyer, Jesus, gets up and says, listen, it's paid for. Everything's been done. The case is closed, stamped full in innocence by my resurrection. Look at the case. And every single time that you find yourself full of guilt and shame and wondering if you're loved, what John says is you need to pull out the case of the gospel and say, look, you don't plead your case. He pleads your case that he, Christ himself is your lawyer and you overcome that accusation with that truth. Martin Luther has this amazing hymn where he would say this, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word, it's just Jesus. See, when you pull out Jesus and his cross, the devil has no answer to it. But you don't just overcome by preaching the gospel to yourself, you overcome, it says, by the word of their testimony. And I love this, for they loved not even their own lives. Okay, what's going on here? What Satan will constantly tempt you with and deceive you into is believing that this world is all there is. That this life is all you have. And right now, you better make the most of it. Because you only get a couple years and everyone else right now is probably getting ahead of you. And so you better wake up and you better get really serious and really active and do whatever it takes to have the best life you can possibly have right now and right here in this world. And the more you believe that, the more you will open yourself up to all of the lies and temptations of Satan. And to the degree that you believe that this is all you get in life is to the degree that you are susceptible to every temptation Satan will give you. And the only way out is, it says, to lose your own life. This, this is the way that you fight back Satan. You take back your life by losing it. See, the, the battle and the struggle is so hard in life because you and I, we put way too much into this world, way too much into our children, way too much into our marriages, way too much into our careers, way too much into our money, our finances, our reputations. And every time we're doing that, we're essentially saying, that's my life. 
This is how I get love. This is how I get liked. This is how I know I'm a somebody. And every time you're doing that, you know what? Satan is going right after that thing. He knows you love that thing. And he knows you're tempted to build everything on or around it and make it your deepest love. But here's what, the, what John said these people did. He said, they said, we will not love those things. But we will make our deepest love Christ. And Satan can't go after that. Because he already tried, and it said the text says, and he failed. And, and this is where it gets even more amazing. Is Satan had to think, okay, well, if I can't go after their great love, Jesus, the best I can do is make their life miserable here by taking away everything else. And the greatest irony and trick played on the devil himself is the more he goes after the other things in your life, if your deepest love is Jesus, all it will drive you deeper into is a greater joy and peace in Jesus. One of my heroes is a guy named Tim Keller, who was a minister in New York for a long time. And uh, about nine months ago, he had a bad diagnosis with cancer. And we don't know how much time he has left, but uh, he wrote an article in the Atlantic Weekly, which I couldn't believe published uh, his article, a couple months ago where he was talking about dying. And one of the indelible lines that I remember is, is he just said, you're really only in touch with the gospel and Christianity to the degree that you're in touch with death. And he talked about how he's told people his whole life, you know, hey, heaven, Jesus, afterlife. And now that he's staring at it with cancer, he's like, I don't know how much I believe this. I'm going to have to believe this. And so he said almost in a new, fresh way, he himself started to embrace this. And say, what if it really is all in the kingdom and the world to come? And he said this. As I did this, to, to my surprise and encouragement, Kathy, my wife, and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to enjoy it. No longer are we burdening it with demands impossible for it to fulfill. We have found that the simplest things from sun on the water and vase, flowers in the vase to our own embraces, sex and conversation bring more joy than ever. As God's reality dawns more on my heart, slowly and painfully and through many tears, the simplest pleasures of this world have become sources of daily happiness. It is only as I have become, for lack of a better term, more heavenly-minded that I can see the material world for the astonishingly good divine gift that it is. I can sincerely say, without any sentimentality or exaggeration, that I've never been happier in my life. That I've never had more days filled with comfort and joy. You know what I love about that? The devil can do nothing about that. 
The battle is won. Go fight like it has. Let me pray. Father, that testimony and so many before, thank you for the testimony of Christians who did not love even their own life. Lord, but they, they found that the secret is not to become cynical and to not care. It's to go deep into you. So that whatever life throws at us, it just sinks us into the deeper reality that you are our life. You and you alone. Lord, help us wherever we are emotionally and spiritually right now to find the deep wonder of the cross and beauty of Jesus that we may wake up, Lord, to the cosmic war around us and fight with the tools of the gospel. Help all of us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.